if you remember that. It's part of a Wednesday night series. Most recently, Greg Love was here from San Francisco Theological Seminary. He has written a book about atonement theories. The title of his book is Love, Violence, and the Cross, How the Nonviolent God Saves Us. Our passage today and our topic today, especially as we are at the table and entering into the sacrament, the ritual, if you will, that is demonstrating what we believe about the atonement, or at least acting it out, we're going to be looking at this. And so we are right now in Ephesians 2, and we realize as we're in this passage, or I hope I want you to realize, is that when we are dealing with the atonement, basically the atonement theories are looking at three things. The human situation, that which is not, which has gone horribly wrong in God's creation, and how God moves toward us in grace, and that transformation of raising us up to new life and a new beginning. And there are lots of ways to talk about that because these are really big topics. What is it that's gone wrong? What is there about human sin and brokenness in this world? What is that? Where did that come from? What is there about God moving toward us in Jesus Christ and what happened on the cross that actually works, is a saving work in our lives and in our world? What does that actually do for us? So I want you to listen to how Paul talks about it in Ephesians 2, just mindful of the different metaphors, and then we're going to hear actually a video doing a little bit of teaching about the atonement. So let's listen to God's word as it comes to us. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Let's pray. God, we want to to know you. We want to be like you and your love and grace. Help us to have eyes to see how we've gotten it wrong and to get it right. Help us to hear your word in Jesus Christ by the power of your spirit. Amen. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10, listen to God's word to you. This is Paul writing to the church in Ephesus, you were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once lived, following the course of this world, following the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among those who are disobedient, All of us once lived among them in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of flesh and senses, and we were by nature children of wrath like everyone else. There you see his description of what's gone wrong, and the best word to describe it is you were dead. But this wonderful next two words, but God. But God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the immeasurable riches, the riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. No simple explanation here. You were dead. 
And not just because of our own brokenness and our own feelings and choices that we've made, but there's also a power at work in this world, isn't there? There's evil at work in this world. No explanation about how that works, but you were dead, alienated, alienated from God and one another, children of wrath. But then you have this picture of God, but God moves toward us in these wonderful descriptions, in grace, in kindness, in in mercy, with amazing love moving toward us in Jesus Christ. Doesn't want anything to separate us from God and from one another. And in Christ's death and resurrection has made us alive to die to all that separates and to be raised to new life. Now, theories of the atonement are trying to find ways, metaphors, pictures. We hear them in scripture, and none of them, none of, just one of them, captures the whole theory, though we try. The sacrificial altar, the the courthouse being justified, the um, marketplace being redeemed, our debts are forgiven. There's a variety of ways. The battlefield, Jesus Christ won a victory over Satan. These different ways of describing it, but none of them totally get at it. And the problem is, I've grown up with the theory, you've probably grown up with this theory, and it's reinforced in a lot of our hymns and a lot of our theology that we're surrounded with, that is actually a dangerous way of thinking about the atonement because of what it communicates to us about God. And it's called the penal substitutionary theory of atonement. That's a big phrase. If we're going to listen for the next eight minutes, there is a professor from Fuller Seminary who's written a book called A Better Atonement. He's being interviewed. And if you get past the bow tie and the funny clothes and just listen closely to these descriptions, I think they will help. And then I'll kind of uh, keep talking after that and we'll talk about the table and the meaning of the table. So listen up. Of the the new best-selling ebook <laughs> after uh, today, a better atonement. Uh, so first of all, uh, for folks who maybe aren't familiar with that word, I'm sure they're familiar with what we're going to talk about. But just yeah. the word atonement, w- what does that even mean? Yeah, it's a technical theological term, so we can avoid it for the rest of the interview if you like. Sure. I, I wouldn't mind. But it means what happened when Jesus died on the cross. So yeah. what does that mean for us as far as doctrine? Yeah. So like you know, when you're a kid, somebody says to you. Jesus died for your sins. And you're like, okay. And you accept that and you accept Jesus into your heart. At a certain point, often it happens during like mid-adolescence, you'll be like, how exactly does that work? What do you mean Jesus? Like by what cosmic calculus does the death of Jesus cleanse me of my sins? And that's where theology kicks in. It's like, Oh, well, actually, as my book shows, there have been like about a dozen major ideas of how the math works that Jesus dying on a cross cleanses us of our sin. Um, I'd say probably the most uh, popular today in the West in America in evangelical Christianity would be that of, or maybe a menu of, including at the top, what is penal substitution. What is that theory of the atonement? Right. That's another technical term. So it basically boils down to this. God is angry at you because of your sin. Mm -hmm. And God's sense of justice is so all-encompassing that God couldn't possibly allow you into his presence because you're sinful. Mm -hmm. End of story. Until Jesus steps between you two, takes God's wrath, and now 
God looks at you and all he sees is Jesus. Mm -hmm. And now you can experience eternal life with God. Now, let me play devil's advocate. Somebody's probably watching going, well, that's exactly the way it is. That's what Paul says in Romans. And that has been the theory of the atonement since the early church, right? Wrong. Good question. But no, Uh, that theory of the atonement is, is modern. It's happened only recently because... It happened really, it started with a guy named Anselm in the Middle Ages, just as the, there was no such thing before a thousand, before the year a thousand AD as that was thought of as like modern legal theory. There was no such thing. People lived in feudal systems with, you know, a lord lived up on a hill and all the serfs lived, you know, down the slopes and they paid homage to their lord and the lord protected them. Well, interestingly, Theories of the atonement before the year 1000 looked a lot more like that. Like it's a Lord protecting vassals or serfs and protecting those people from the attacks of evil. So in those days, there was a very popular theory of the atonement that said what Jesus did on the cross primarily was defeated Satan. Yeah. Defeated the person who's trying to destroy you. And this would be the, 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 the Christus victor. Christus victor is the Latin yes, term for it, but Christ the victor mm-hmm. over Satan. Well, now we live in a, the most litigious legal society in history. You and I, between federal law, state law, and local ordinances, we have, you and I each have more laws over us than any other human beings who've ever existed. Yeah. We think legally. So, no surprise, we have a very legalistic understanding of the atonement, and that's where you get things like, maybe when you were a kid in youth group, you heard something like, God's a judge, he condemns you to death, and then he takes off the robe and goes to the electric chair for you. So, kind of Jesus the lawyer, so Yeah, right, it becomes a very judicial kind of thing, like, there's a price to be paid, you've done something wrong, you earn a penalty... Someone needs to pay that penalty. But the funny thing about this thing is, like, if that ever happened in an actual courtroom and the judge is like, but I'm going to go to the electric chair for this man I've just condemned to death, everybody in the courtroom would be like, no, dude, that's not how it works. That's not justice. Like, you don't get to do that. Yeah. that that's right. That's not justice. So in the last 30 years, we've seen uh, the emergence, to, to use that word, of uh, uh, some new theories, mm-hmm. one of which has been developed by Rene Girard, who I'm a, a, a very big fan of. Yeah. Um, was it some of his theories that made you want to write about the atonement? Yeah, I think his theories are fascinating. So he comes at it, and he brings kind of a fresh perspective because he's an anthropologist and not a theologian. Mm-hmm. And he says, look, throughout primitive human history, people said when bad things happen, it, it's because two people want the same thing and conflict builds up and resentment builds up and violence it, it ends up happening. I mean, in the earlier reports on Israel, we might even look at the whole thing of what continues to happen in the Middle East of all these resentments over the same piece of property. Mm-hmm. And so then violence happens. And Gerard says what people did in primitive religions was, you know, they throw a virgin into a volcano, right? Or they sacrifice an innocent victim. Yeah. And, all the, and all the tension dissipates. Right. Temporarily, right? Right. <laughs> Until it starts to and come up again. And this is called a scapegoat. A scapegoat theory, right? And so Gerard says, but when Jesus goes to the cross, he shows the bankruptcy of that whole system. Violence does not cure anybody of their resentment. Hmm. It never works. 
It's a dead end. And by God going to the cross, we look at Jesus on the cross and go, it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. The last scapegoat, he says. Not because he's the perfect scapegoat, but because he shows the whole system of scapegoating and bloodletting and violence to relieve pressure in society doesn't work. We have to find peaceful ways to resolve our conflict. So as a, uh, just a typical Christian at home, as they reflect upon their salvation, how important do you think it is of whatever theory of the atonement or doctrine that they cling to? How important is that to their salvation? Well, I, there's, a two, there's a two-sided answer to that question. The first side is not that important. If you embrace that Jesus' death on the cross had cosmic significance, that you can identify with that. In, in fact, since the early church, people have said this is a primarily important doctrine, but it's not a doctrine that gets you in or out of heaven. Your understanding of Jesus' death on the cross or the atonement, mm -hmm. that's not what does it for you. So it's not that important to get it right. In fact, there was no early church council that decided on one doctrine of the atonement like they did with the Trinity or the divinity of Christ or what books make the Bible. And it what maybe books wasn't quite as central as we think it is now. Right. Oh, it clearly wasn't. That's yeah. right. The other side of that coin, though, is I say, it's incredibly important. Yeah. It's, the, it's the single most important event. If you're a Christian, it's the single most important event. It is the event. In all of cosmic history. Yeah. So look at it, meditate on it, and I think if nothing else, look at Jesus hanging on the cross and go and think to myself, think to yourself, as Paul sings in Philippians 2, that God became human being and that God experienced ultimate solidarity with us as human beings, with our sense of loss, our sense of loneliness. And on the cross, even on the cross, Jesus yells out, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yes. That's incredible. Mm -hmm. So much there. So he's saying it's not important in terms of what you believe about the atonement as far as receiving God's saving grace, but it's incredibly important in terms of how we behave. And I want to talk more about that. Doctrine is actually a word taken from the French word for doctor. Doctrine is meant to be healing teaching, literally, healing teaching a balm of healing in our experience of God, not something that wounds and divides and creates hostility. So what we think we're doing at this table is very important because we are celebrating the atonement. So what is the meaning of this table, the meaning of the cross, the meaning of Christ's body broken for us, his blood poured out for us? Very, very important. We may look at this table as an altar of sacrifice where there is the penal substitutionary theory of atonement, where God actually has a stance toward, toward sinners that is hostile, there is wrath, and Jesus comes in and takes the hit, and basically God tortures and kills Jesus to make the walls come down and so that we can be forgiven and experience new life. That actually does not create a healing experience of God, does it? Because what it creates and communicates is a God who looks at us primarily with wrath and anger. 
not primarily with love and mercy, and that God requires blood and flesh to be made right with us. Brian McLaren writes, if violence and hostility characterize God's identity, is it realistic to aspire to be better than God by being nonviolent and non-hostile? No wonder with this theory of the atonement there is hostility that is a part of the way we behave, religious hostility, even in the Christian tradition. On the other hand, if we look at this table as a table of fellowship, as a table of healing, as a table of reconciliation, a table of hospitality, if you will, we see that God is primarily gracious, as we hear in Ephesians 2, that God is self-giving. God is moving toward us in the fullness of love. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord and not willing to let anything separate us from the love of God. And so God's love is poured out for the world in Jesus, not to judge the world, but that the world might be saved. Not just those who confess Jesus, but this love and this grace goes out to everyone, to the whole world. So it bonds us to this image of God's love for the whole world. Now, I remember having discussions with Josh about this. And I said, but what about Passover? Isn't this table associated with Passover and Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, right? Passover, you had the the blood that was put on the doorposts, and so the people of Israel were delivered from slavery in Egypt and they made it out alive. But you know what? The story of the Passover primarily is about liberation. It's about deliverance. It is not primarily about being exempt from God's exterminating behavior, right? And as we move into the New Testament and we look at Jesus and what he says about what is at this table and what's being celebrated in his blood being poured out, his body broken, it is a new covenant, a covenant of love. God is not separated apart from Jesus and killing Jesus to make us right with God. God is in Jesus, entering fully into our situation of death, taking that upon himself and putting it to death and making us alive with Jesus Christ so that we can live like him, this gracious, this self-giving movement of grace and love, living in solidarity, moving out toward others with hospitality. That's what we become like. Which one of those will lead us into conversations with people of other faith? This understanding of God who is hostile, who kills his son to make us right with God, the penal substitutionary atonement theory, or this God of solidarity who moves toward us constantly in grace and love and liberates us in Jesus Christ. See how crucial the theory of atonement is? In the way we live, in the way we become like God and become like Jesus. Many of you know that when Josh left, that we basically, he had a lot of crosses on his wall down there in his office, and so we decided to continue the crosses on the wall and to live a cruciform life and to pray for him and to pray for ourselves, that we will do that. What does that mean? That we die to all that is hostile and violent and hateful, and that we are raised to new life that looks like Jesus Christ. That's cruciform living. 
praying for, committing ourselves to live like that. I want to close with a lead-in to our hymn. And I want you to take your hymn book, and I want you to turn to page 770, because I want you to see how we are surrounded by the penal substitutionary atonement of a theory, theory rather, of atonement, and how it really is going to take work for us to recognize that as something that's not a healing teaching in our Christian doctrine, and to move toward that which is, which is more accurate and reflects the victory that God has accomplished in Jesus Christ, that we are served at this table, getting rid of everything that separates us from the love of God in ourselves, with God, with one another. So look at verse 2. We're not going to give up our faith in Jesus. In Christ alone, God has done a healing work. That is the center of who we are. In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save. Till on the cross, as Jesus died, listen to these words, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. We were singing this at General Assembly. I was sitting next to Josh. That line was sung. The wrath of God was satisfied. Josh turns to me, angry, and says, God killed Jesus. (laughs) He just hated, hated the way we were so immersed in this theology, this negative, not healing doctrine of the atonement. And so when we sing this song here, we don't give up anything else about what God has done and coming toward us in love in Jesus Christ. But instead of saying the wrath of God was satisfied, we say the love of God was satisfied. So we're changing a word already in our new hymn book. But let's stand up and sing and let's live our lives with a healing doctrine of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ.